Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In this week's episode, Richard and I reflect on the primacy of loyalty for the discipline of biblical wisdom. In a culture where information flows freely, why do we suffer from a deficit of wisdom? With our openness to the many treasured schools and traditions of human knowledge, why do we fail at wisdom and understanding? Beginning with Israel's sojourn in the wilderness, the podcast explores the practical implications of the biblical function, harlot. In the end, the discussion uncovers a painful truth. The secret of our failure is our inability to commit to a single tradition of wisdom and our infidelity toward teachers and the authority of knowledge they hold for our children. You're listening to the Bible as literature. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to a landmark episode of the Bible as Literature podcast. This is episode 25. I wanted to talk today, again, I want to revisit this question of loyalty because I think that it is much more central to Scripture and to the study of Scripture specifically than people realize. And I think the question of loyalty and the way in which our culture handles loyalty is a problem in the sense that it is becoming increasingly difficult for people to learn from the Bible because of our tradition of individualism. The individual does a survey of the world around them, does a survey of the teachings around them, of the religions around them, and goes shopping. And we've gotten to a point where even people who claim to have made a commitment to a particular tradition still behave as though wisdom has to do with openness to variety. And there's a subtlety here. Someone who is wise does not suppress variety. Someone who is wise can appreciate the perspective of other traditions. So I'm not advocating fundamentalism. What I'm saying is that in order for you to learn from any tradition, in order to become wise, there is a level of fidelity and loyalty that is required. In Paul's letters, he's very explicit that you have many teachers, many people who want to peddle something to you, but you have one father in the gospel. So this question of loyalty in the prophets, where you have to be loyal to God through Abraham, your patriarch, or in Paul's letters where he's explicit, you have to be loyal to God through Paul's instruction is the big issue. And what's striking to me, and I think it's, we've talked about this, Dr. Benton, I think it has to do with my own background as a first generation American, whose parents, both my parents are from the Middle East. And as much as they've tried to blend into Western culture, you can take the child out of the village, but you can't take the village out of the child. I mean, my parents conveyed to me this sense of loyalty that makes it easy for me to make a decision that I'm going to commit to this teaching and come hell or high water, I am wed to this teaching. And if I decide to learn from a teacher, I'm going to be committed to this teacher, come hell or high water. I'm not going to go on a survey of academia in order to decide whether or not I want to choose 
to stick with a particular teacher or teaching. For me, the commitment is on the level of marital commitment. You make a decision and you stick to it. And there is value in the stick to itness. I think there's a real value. I mean, if you look at the way that marriage has changed over the past hundred years, a hundred years ago, you got married and maybe your parents arranged it for you. Maybe you fell in love. That wasn't the issue. You were married. And if you had problems, then you figured it out because you were married. The fact that you were loyal to this person meant that however I feel about this person, I have to work it out. I have to figure out a way that this is going to work. Because they were loyal, they had to be rational. I just have to figure it out. Whereas now, when people have trouble in their marriage, it's because they feel bad about the marriage. And they say, well, maybe I shouldn't stay in this marriage because I feel bad. And then you go to a psychologist and talk about your feelings. And you talk about your feelings, and you talk about your feelings, and you talk about your feelings. Talking about your feelings is not going to make you rational. What's going to make you rational is say, you know, I need to put the feelings to the side for a while. Yes, when my wife speaks to me that way, I feel sad. I feel angry when my wife talks to me that way. Nevertheless, I have to figure out a way to get this to work out. And when I think that I may have to follow my feelings and maybe I need to find someone who makes me less angry or less sad, then I become irrational. When it's simply, I stay with this person because this is the person. Correct. And I think what is totally lost on our communities in the United States, in Western Europe, the industrialized, which I consider to be not necessarily a positive attribute, but our industrialized society, our first world society, what is totally lost on us with respect to wisdom is that that is what makes you a whole person. You cannot become a whole person without the stick to itness of those types of commitments. And it's bigger than marriage. I would say that the issue with marriage, the issue with personal relationships, where we separate ourselves from each other frivolously, in my opinion, in this culture, that is symptomatic of the deeper issue with has to do with our lack of commitment to a tradition of wisdom, whatever that tradition is. Take scripture. In the Older Testament, it is clear that the prophets are insisting that you cannot have divided loyalties. As Matthew says, the Matthean Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and materialism. You have to choose. But we don't consider the implications of that choice for the way that we approach the study of texts. People have said or, or made the comment that you have two Eastern scholars, Dr. Benton and Father Bulos, a cradle Orthodox and a Hebrew scholar, an Arab and a white guy who knows all about Semitic culture. You know, they've said that this approach of dealing with the text only is a Protestant evangelical approach. And I always laugh because my mother's family is from Palestine and my father's family is from Egypt, two of the oldest churches in the modern world. And it's always someone who's a convert to the Eastern church who's telling me that I sound evangelical. And when they say that, it's very clear to me that they have not read the early Antiochian writers. Why do they want to talk about other things in addition to the text? What is it with this approach of complete loyalty to the text that bugs them? It's not 50% the text and 50% this. It's not 95% the text and 5% this. It is absolutely, with boundless zeal, the text or the highway. There's no middle ground. You either commit 100% to the biblical tradition as your source of wisdom, or you are lost. Why does that bug people so much? 
I think one of the reasons why it bugs people is because the text can be confusing or hard, and it takes so much dedication and loyalty in order to look at this and understand it. And the biblical text is painful because it always goes deeper, it always challenges what you know, and it always challenges what you think about yourself. One of the most important images that I see in the prophets, and people are probably tired of hearing me talk about it, it's Exodus. It's the desert. The desert is the most most important image in my mind in the Bible. I think the only reason why Adam was in the garden to begin with was so that he could be taken out of the garden in chapter 3 and end up in the wilderness. Being in the wilderness is the most central image because when you're in the wilderness, there's one way to survive. That's God. There is no food. There is no water. There is no shelter. So how do you survive? Only by a miracle. Only God can allow you to survive. It makes the decision for loyalty stark. You either go with God or you die. That is your only choice. For scripture, wisdom is measured by the one decision you're allowed to make in life. Do you trust this tradition or do you not trust this tradition? Do you trust the source of life or do you not trust the source Correct. of life? Which gets to the heart of the meaning of resurrection in Paul's letters. Exactly. And I think that this is the essential idea. Now, the desert is not an ontological place. The Lord is not saying, okay, everybody in Jerusalem, let's all get in our wagons and our chariots or whatever and go to the desert. That's not what he's saying. It's a functional desert in that you require God's help, assistance, and grace for every step of your life. To be more precise, as Christ says in the New Testament, you are one who has become like a child so that you are solely dependent upon scripture for everything. This is the point that I'm getting at. I'm saying that the way in which our culture looks down its nose at someone who puts themselves in that position is why our culture lacks wisdom. We have known as a race, as a people, the humanity, in many different ways, in many different settings, that the highest expression of human dignity is when a disciple humbles himself before a teacher and gives himself over to the teaching. But somehow in this culture, we don't respect that relationship. We don't respect teachers. We don't respect fathers. I just read a very sad article written by a teacher, Josh Walden, who quit his teaching job because they're not paying teachers enough. And this is a guy who was a decorated teacher. We pay Wall Street executives. We pay professional athletes. But we don't give the money necessary to feed the one who holds the authority of knowledge for our children because we reject that authority no matter what anyone says to me about the purpose of modern education and how we rationalize things in our culture, you put your money where your mouth is. If you are not putting money in the pocket of the one who's feeding your children knowledge and life, that means that you don't respect knowledge and you don't respect life. And this is a dynamic we have in scripture. Where do the people put their loyalty? They put their loyalty in the king and the priests. Now, the king is there in order to protect them. He's the head of the army. He's the commander-in-chief in the Old Testament. So he's the one who's going to keep them safe. That's why you need to make sure the king is wealthy so that he can hold power in order to keep your people safe. The priests, sociologically, were in charge of the cult. In scripture, they're in charge of teaching. So in Hosea, especially in chapter 4, you know that the people suffer because the priests stop teaching Torah and they're all invested in cultic practice. They're not doing the teaching. In Deuteronomy, the function of the king is to listen to the teaching of the priest. The priests teach the king. So you're either teaching or you're learning scripture. And that's it. That's the only dynamic. You're teaching or learning Torah. But the people want to have a strong priesthood and a strong king because there's two things that they're worried about. Only two things they're worried about. 
marauding armies and bad weather that's going to ruin the crops. You can have drought, you can have diseases, you can have locusts, all these things. So you can protect against enemies by having a strong army and putting up walls. The only way you can really deal with the forces of nature is through Baal. That's how you deal with it. Because how do you stop in chapter 13 of Hosea, how do you stop the east wind that comes to dry out all the crops? There's nothing you can do to stop that wind. So you pray to a god of fertility to help you out. Here's the tragedy of turning to Baal, who is a metaphor, obviously. The tragedy of turning to Baal is that it becomes a vicious cycle of degradation. I gave this example Sunday when we were talking about this proverb in the gospel, the eye is the lamp of the body. The example I gave was that if someone just simply travels, they might learn how sink faucets and bathroom door labels and street signs are different in Europe or the Middle East, but it is not necessarily so that they will gain wisdom. They might gain a measure of wisdom, but their ability to truly gain wisdom and to gain greater enlightenment with respect to other cultures is completely dependent upon the knowledge they acquired through study before they left. Someone who is a linguist and who has done a broad study of etymology, walking down the street of Minneapolis is not walking down the street of the same city as someone who does not read and study. So it's absolutely important that the source that you go back to with fierce loyalty and consistency, that that source is established before you do anything. Without that source, the Socratic method collapses. Right. This is my critique of Western culture. So if you're going to Baal, your source is empty because you're worshiping yourself. You're worshiping your own fear and your own selfishness. If you turn to the Lord and the prophets, you are then drawing upon a source of wisdom that can make out of a bad experience and out of a good experience and out of any travel or any interaction or anything that you do in life, something of great value and meaning that expands your perspective and your depth and your knowledge because you are fiercely loyal to one source of knowledge. And that one source of knowledge keeps telling you that it's the one that's granting you everything that you have for free. You are then capable of returning to the neighbor for free what your neighbor needs. And because we understand that everything we receive is free and from grace, then we can give freely and with grace. And this is the propaganda of scripture. It's trying to create people who are, instead of acting out of fear, act out of abundance. And here's what happens. In the desert, there was no fear because the Lord supplied everything. There was so little fear that they were even snotty about it, like, well, we're tired of this food, rather than realizing that this was completely by grace that they have any food. And then once they get to the promised land, a drought happens and they say, uh-oh, maybe we didn't choose correctly. Maybe this relationship wasn't what we thought it was going to be. Maybe this is gonna end up badly in the end. Maybe we should shop around a little bit just to see if there might be someone else who can supply my needs better than the Lord. That is the critical moment. Exactly. That's when your stick to itness is the main issue. Exactly, because what happens is once you say, well, maybe I should try Baal a little bit. Maybe I should make sure that our king is a little bit stronger. Then instead of taking care of the poor freely, you use your own money and your own wealth and your own time in order to secure yourself because maybe the Lord isn't going to come through for you. Well, I don't like what the Bible's saying on this point, Father Mark, or how do you know the Bible is right? Maybe the Bible's wrong. Well, I don't know, and I don't care. Did you marry the Bible in your baptism or not? Let's be clear here. 
Are you committed to the teaching or not? Did you marry your wife or are you dating her? This is the point that I'm driving at. Are you faithful or are you a whore? I mean, this, I mean you're, you're saying it nicely. The Bible says it much less nicely. Thank you, Lord, for making me look good on the podcast today. <laughs> Hosea 1, that's what it's about. Exactly. But I'm actually deeply troubled, and I say this from my own personal experience, not just by the lack of fidelity, but by the scorn with which people in our culture look down upon fidelity. They do not respect loyalty to authority. They do not respect loyalty to teachers or to parents. It's deeply troubling. Here's why it's troubling. What do we say in America? I need to make sure I'm taking care of my needs. In scripture, if you are taking care of your needs, you're a whore. It's so stark in scripture. Now I'm feeling I'm feeling squirmy just saying this because even I am uncomfortable with this message and I like it. <laughs> but I'm still uncomfortable with it and I'm still uncomfortable talking about it. But this is really the contrast that's laid out. Well, I think it's important that you confess your discomfort because, and this is important for our listeners to hear, you can understand the biblical teaching, which at the end of the day goes against our biological impulse. That's mm-hmm. scripture. It's simply given to cancel out humanity's biological impulses so that life on earth could actually be continued and sustained. But because it's going against something that is encoded in our DNA, it is impossible to accept. I cannot stress this enough. You can appreciate it. You can pursue it. You can profess your love to that teaching, but in your bones, in your DNA, you can't accept it because it is impossible for you to accept your own self-cancellation. You don't even accept your own self-cancellation in suicide because suicide is a way of trying to express yourself to the world through your death. But if you're trying to express yourself, there's still a you involved in the discussion. still an ego. Scripture goes beyond that. It goes to your complete failure and your complete abandonment, which obviously there are human beings who experience that. And those people for us are represented by the sign of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Exactly. Anyways, I think it's important for people to reflect on this question about loyalty, and hopefully we'll pick this conversation up in a future podcast. I'm sure it'll come up again. Thanks a lot. Appreciate your time, Richard. Take care. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.